Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome back to Conspiranormal, and uh, this is your host, Adam Sane, and we got Mr. Robbie Lenz here, and uh, we are flying once again Lukeless tonight. He is uh, apparently a victim of the time change. Poor Luke. It says we record on Sunday, March 8th. <laughs> yeah, poor Luke. So we got, uh, we got Robbie over here taking over his, uh, taking over his microphone. <laughs> so <laughs> if Luke does, does, does decide to show up, you know, everybody... Uh, real, uh, <clears throat> real happy to uh, have someone on the line that uh, we had we've had on a few times on the show, and being the fact that uh, around this time, early March of 2012 is when we started this show, and it's around the time of our like third anniversary uh, this month, the third anniversary of Conspiranormal, and. I have someone that I consider a friend and someone that is a friend and a mentor and was the first uh, guest on this show and then appeared in the middle of like 2013 and also at our 50th, uh, our 50th show party back in May of last year. And that is uh, Dr. Future. And uh, we're happy to have you back on Dr. Future. It is awesome to be back with my good friends there, uh, both with you and with Rob. It's nice to meet. And uh, I'm sorry, I, I guess I should confess, I did a pulse of denura ceremony on uh, Luke. 
So he's probably in a coma right now. So <laughs> wasn't a nice thing for me to do. How ironic he would succumb yeah. to a magical working, but uh, he might he might be in a in a food coma. Yeah, food coma. <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, I think I appreciate the nice introduction. By the way, always appreciate that. Not always welcome everywhere, but uh, uh, I think I may have had some influence in in uh, telling you you had the right stuff to do a show like this. Yes, you did. And uh, that's probably one of the best things I ever accomplished was getting you on the air. And now you have far eclipsed me uh, in so many ways with your audience and your clientele. And and uh, how many shows has this been? It's been a slew. Well, this would be episode 72. Well, see, that has uh, significance, too. And you know, ge- ge- gematria. So there's probably some importance to this. It's cabalistically significant. Right, exactly. Uh, we're we're going to talk about, uh, in mentioning that, we're going to talk about something called, um, we're going to talk about Jewish ritual magic tonight. And this is something that you've been studying, getting into, as you've been compiling like your um, Time Life book set that you've been writing. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, <laughs> I heard an interview with you, and of course, you know I know you, and we've we've talked several times about this. But um, interview that you had with uh, Derek Gilbert. Uh, this was back, I believe, I think in January, and where we talked about uh, you. You talked with him about Jewish ritual magic, and it's an interesting subject. And I'm sure that if Luke was here, he would be all in on it. But uh, I wanted to get you know. How did you become interested in in Jewish ritual magic? What what interested you in specifically in that? Okay, because it seems like a kind of maybe a little bit obscure subject yeah. in a way. Yeah, and in some ways not. Well, I have to say and, and reiterate what I said on uh, Derek Gilbert's show, and and I hope there's some people who've listened to that show and are listening in uh, to this because I can give them a little bit of an aftermath of that show. Uh, I, I was not off on some kind of quest or, uh, you know, this is not like Les Miserables. I'm not trying to uh, yeah. go on some witch hunt, uh, even though it may involve witches, uh, in this topic. It sort of fell into my lap accidentally. Um, as you know, I'm doing a much larger book series on a much broader topic. Uh, the book series I'm doing, I've been working on for, I guess, about three years or more, actually three and a half it's called the Holy War Chronicles: A Spiritual View of the War on Terror, and uh, uh, it really looks at uh, the scope of how people of faith decided to take violent acts or some kind of course of acts against other people uh, that are God-fearing type people, and how that affects the world. What does that do to God's testimony in the world? How does it affect the participants? And originally it was going to be a book. I thought I would say, well, maybe I can cobble together enough for a whole book on this topic. And then it got to be so unwieldy, I had people saying, well, you need to make this three books or, you know, two books. And I thought, no, 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 heaven forbid, that's the last thing I'll do. And uh, now it looks like it's sort of settled in as a series of six books uh, with a seventh uh, spinoff book uh, related to it that's already been drafted as well. And five of the seven are drafted. And I'm finishing the last uh, two, and the one that I just finished at the end of last year, uh, right before that prior interview you cited, 
uh, goes back into history, and it's looking at a religious history of holy wars, and the original root to monotheistic faith is Judaism, right. as it influenced later on Christianity and Islam, others. Uh, and so I started getting into that. And originally I was just going to write a volume that included both Christianity and uh, Judaism, wondering again if I'd have enough material. And it got to be fairly long at that point uh, until I ran into some material. I sort of, while going through historical information of the history of Judaism, I also was collecting late-breaking stuff as it was happening over the news wires because it, it includes more modern-day activities as well, too. And I came across something very, very curious that sent me in a whole different direction. I had to go back and start doing back study of a part of Judaism that having been raised in the church my whole life in Sunday school and thought I understood Judaism fairly well from that experience and realized that I understood it very little, if at all. And and before I jump into that, I just want to say that uh, for those of you who did hear that earlier uh, talk with Derek Gilbert, uh, the original scope was intended to be exclusively Jewish magic, like what we would talk about tonight, because e- sure. even now, there's so much material here, we won't be able to cover all of the references, even in this volume, to this, which it actually comprises just a little bit over 5% of the whole volume. It's a 712-page volume currently, uh, yes. pre-publication, so it's about 48 pages worth of material on it, uh, of condensed information on Jewish magic. But, um, you know, it's, it's a lot to cover, even a series of shows. But um, it got off, that discussion sort of led to some obvious elephants in the room about Christianity and its relationship to Israel. And we, we opened up a can of worms, but it's a can of worms that has to be opened eventually. Um, I probably uh, would have preferred to have addressed it more when I had the material published for people to look at the references and, and things like that. To go over, but anyway, nevertheless, it we went into it, and in the aftermath, um, I had overwhelmingly positive response from listeners. Uh, one of the most encouraging things I saw a blogger who was familiar with the Future Quake show that that it did for seven years say that he he was never prouder to be a Futurian, uh, that it was straightforward, plain talk, and that was encouragement to me uh, because I have been worried about how people are going to accept the whole series, much less this topic. And and it went on, you know, numerous sources like that provided good support. But I was vociferously attacked in the Messianic Roots, Hebraic Roots community. Uh, sure. The roots that try to really um, promote the Jewishness of Christianity and that to find out the deeper secrets, the deeper wisdom of Christianity requires becoming a good Jew and understanding all things Jewish. And I think they understood some of the implications of the information that was coming out. And a couple sources, I saw a couple sources of criticism, and they were seemed like they were mostly applied toward really trivial, um, just peripheral issues, uh, of which, of course, I, I was not present to be able to, to clarify uh, their assertions. But it will be in the text. Uh, the text will make it very clear. But they never really addressed the key fundamental questions that were asked. And so I, it reinforced what I suspect is that uh, it will cause at least from the scope of people who bother to consider it, it'll cause some real consternation and debate. And uh, I just thought some of your listeners who had heard that might wonder what was the aftermath of it. And uh, it was a little premature for me. I didn't feel completely prepared like I will when the book comes out 
to have people pre-read in it and to be able to methodically go through the the uh, references and assertions. But one thing I will ask before before I jump into this is that um, uh, a lot of people may think, hey, he's bluffing. He's not done anything. He's been blowing smoke all this time. Uh, he's not produced. In fact, even some shows I've come on virtually as- asserted that. Uh, but you, it, on this topic, I think in some other volumes have too. You've actually uh, been privy to take a look at the uh, the draft volumes so far, correct, Adam? Yes, yes. Uh, so you know they exist. You can vouch. I do that they really are real. I know. It, I know at least three exist. Yeah. So I know that. Yeah, with real real content, and and this one in particular, this was drafted from. You've already been perusing it already, correct? Yes, I have. Well, let me, let me ask you this. From what you have reviewed, and I know you're a person of integrity, um, would you say that the assertions that you've seen so far have been well-documented? Yes. So they're not just it, pulled it out of the air. They're not ex-cathedra. They're actually no. – um, would most of them be considered reputable uh, Jewish sources, in fact? I would say so. Okay. I mean, you you go you you're going straight to the source mm-hmm. on on many. Uh, you know, we're not going to get in too much into this tonight, but some yeah. of the some of the the beliefs that are in, uh, well, you know, like Hasidic Judaism, especially, mm-hmm. or like the more the more radical kind of Orthodox Judaism. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the stuff that is really shocking. I mean, you've just pulled that straight from their own yeah. website and their own writings. Now, uh, I know you're you're in a difficult position, like I used to be doing a show, and that with a new guest, a brand new topic every week, it's near impossible to go with a fine tooth comb through every topic, just sure. the sheer number of hours. So, I'm sure you probably have not been able to go exhaustively in the references I've had, but you have seen their hot links, correct? So, so yes, a reader, I mean, they're all there. Yeah. They're all there. It's all. I mean, you, it's are It's all hot linked in blue, and I, I've I followed a you know a couple, two or three right, of them. Right, right. And I, you know, uh, if, if there's any mistakes, they're they're inadvertent mistakes that are just made because of a, a fallible human being, and particularly one who's a fairly new writer, but n- nothing intentional, uh, intending to mislead. So I just want to put that out front uh, that yeah. you you can testify that this stuff's legitimate and real information. It's part of a larger narrative. Uh, I, again, I'm not on a witch hunt uh, for any particular people, but when there's an elephant in the room, there's an elephant in the room. And it, this information was particularly distressing for me because <clears throat> I have really been into the prophecy movement ever since 1976 when I first read The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, best-selling book in the 1970s, supposedly. And I uh, read it through in the night, brother did. It really re-energized my faith, even though I was a regular church goer and, and you know, believed in Jesus and uh, baptized believer. Um, you get things get a little stale, and you started seeing the real things going on in the world that related to the pages of the Bible, and that can't help but inspire your faith. But that has had an influence to me, not only. Uh, you know, in subsequent uh, prophecy sources, cable TV came along and shows like that. Vociferous reader of books. We had a lot of prophecy topics on Future Quake. But um, it affects your, your reading of the Bible. In other words, when you read passages in the Bible, you automatically pre-fit it into a template you've inherited. But also even things like foreign policy, how you look at other cultures, other people, other religions, have, you you find with a little contemplation have been pre-chewed based upon some fundamental assumptions and assertions that you adopted long ago, sometimes in, in youth, and have never really tested them. 
Right. Uh, and uh, the Bible has a principle that says about things being shaken so that that which cannot be shaken remains. And I have found this process of doing research for this book series, and in particularly this volume that this material comes from, has been a process of shaking for me uh, to try to get to the truth of things. And I can say one thing for sure for a listener, for those who, who are people of faith, and that, that's just a subset of your audience, but it certainly hasn't shaken my faith. It hasn't shaken my faith in the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth or what's real. But for those who are skeptical of organized religion, I'm very, very sympathetic for people who are. And when people are feeding lines, and particularly when they use religion to try to attack other people or demonize people groups, uh, I'll just go on the record and say that's flat evil, and that's not supported by a real reading of the Bible. Uh, And in fact, uh, Muslims have often said, with the way they understand the Quran and how they understand and use it, the overwhelming bulk of people would say the same thing about their book as well. Uh, although we've known that Muslims and Christians and Jews uh, have been involved in melees throughout history, I find that it usually it's the extremists that are scrapping for a fight and use their holy text for that purpose are the ones that drag all the rest of us into it. They're also the loudest, too. They're the loudest, and they're bullies. They're not only bullies with people of different faith, they're bullies of people within their own ranks. And uh, so hopefully this can debunk some of it. Sorry that was a long preamble, but I think that needed to be said. And I, b- before I jump into this, is there anything else you wanted to say? Well, I just wanted to add that uh, as someone that uh, listened to the, the pretty much the last couple of years of Future Quake, uh, from 2010 all the way to 2012, um, and probably that was the one of the most revealing times in Future Quake because I thought at that point was when you started to see some of the things that you know you, that you've that you've talked about and began to wrestle with kind of the um, what is it cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. of right. what you were taught and what you were hearing, right. Right, and I can I can vouch for that. You know that this the, before even before you started the book series, you know this was already going on. And, you know, and 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 I've I've been on. I feel like you know through Future Quake and then our friendship that you know we we've you know, I've gone on that journey with you basically as well myself. There's a lot of things yeah. that I that that just I still even reading some of the chapters in your book that just kept completely blowing my mind. Yeah. And I've gotten more and more used to this stuff being around. All right. So well, I just wanted to make that statement. I know we've traded notes over time, and, and you have been a, a historical <laughs> goldmine for me because every time I try to stump you with something <laughs> historical and politics or things, you always know ten times as much. So I appreciate your assistance in, in where it's been in this book series. But, um, but I will say that none of it has had any shaking of the of the gospel message, the simplicity of the the stuff right. that Jesus teaches that everybody everybody in your audience uh, doesn't have an issue with, and um, this is going to sound very inflammatory, but uh, I think it relates to the people in your audience. The only people I've ever met that didn't like the basic teachings of Jesus, regardless whether you would call them real people of faith or you know those monotheists or whatever. The only people who really didn't like the teachings of Jesus were Satanists and, and, and Jews. Huh. And that's hard for me to say because being part of the prophecy community, Bible prophecy, yeah. uh, you, you put the Jewish community in a very, very sacred, special, sort of untouchable place. 
Uh, and culturally, we've also adopted that if you do any kind of critiquing, it is automatically labeled anti-Semitic. Yeah. And the experiences of the Holocaust and, and other real persecution that's gone on, that, that's definite, <laughs> has created an environment where nobody can do honest critique anymore. Uh, and I certainly, if you've noticed in our future quick listeners, I do plenty of critiquing about fellow Christians. Uh, I have to self-critique myself all the time. So in an academic environment or in a pursuit of truth, without the ability to critique and ask honest questions, you're not going to get anywhere. It's just a world of self-delusion. So I think we all have to resist that temptation to because I think it's a form of worship. In, anything you put which you can no longer critique, you are worshiping. Plus so many things. So many things are thrown around. So many words are thrown around. Um like uh, you're anti, you're an anti-Semite, or you're a racist, or these words yeah. that you can just, did you just like some people say these things and they don't even really understand what they mean. Yeah, I saw I saw a footage of um, where I was, you know, I was talking to Luke about this last night. We were talking about this, uh, basically a group of Hasidic Jews that were cutting through this uh, schoolyard. Uh, school property to get to their services to get to their synagogue on some on some yeah. one of the holy days right and they're they're passing through this area and the school had a problem with it and you know make a long story short they had some parents over there that were trying to enforce the rules of the school like you can't walk through here well you know this one uh, uh, Hasidic Jewish man uh, they gets in a conversation with this other guy and he says. Uh, he looks at the man and says, you're an anti-Semite because you won't let us walk through here, basically. Yeah. And well, the other guy looks at him and said, are you kidding me? I'm not an anti-Semite. I lost my grandparents at Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so these things are just thrown around yeah. and where, to where people don't really understand just like the full meaning, <laughs> the full connotation well, of what things mean. And it, it turns into to a cop-out. Cop it's like right. a, a scapegoat to an actual... Right, legitimate argument. Yeah, it's also to it's yeah, and right, it's also used to shut down debate. That's right, and it's even used within communities. It's not just to people external. Uh, within the Jewish community, they have this term "self-loathing Jews," which are Jews mm-hmm. which give pause to taking land from other people, or throwing people out of their homes, or wanting to coexist with other people in yeah. Israel or elsewhere. And to me, it's synonymous, you know, for Jews with a conscience. In other words, if you have a conscience about the actions you're doing and how it affects your brother, then then they call that a self-loathing Jew. And and right. in the Christian world, they have these same things too. Uh, if if you want peace, if you want to coexist, well, then you're just a liberal. You're just a you're a liberal Christian, or you know, uh, they have a whole bunch of ones, you know, living in worldliness or whatever. So so it yeah. bullies people even within their own ranks. Uh, and truth is the only thing in the pursuit. And I don't say I'm a bastion of truth. I, I just desire to pursue it, and it's painful for me. And sometimes there's things I still don't want to let go of. You know, uh, tried things for me that are dear to me to question. But uh, we, we to find truth, like Jesus said, you know, uh, he who seeks finds. And so I want to be a seeker so I can find out what's going on. And sorry about the long setback here, but I wanted the right frame of reference for your listeners that we're, yep. we're just trying to understand what's going on. So we exactly. understand the actions people take because without this knowledge, you don't understand what's even being said in our newspapers today. And well, there's a lot of history in the volume that you have in your hands about what the Jewish 
how the Jewish religion has evolved, what it became after they left Israel before, uh, how they view Gentiles, what's taught in the yeshiva at youth, and it helps understand reading between the lines what they say in the newspapers today. Yeah, and, 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 you, and you know, being a student of history, and I want to just add this before we just kind of go on, being a student of history, I understand what anti-Semitism is. I understand what that means. Yeah. Though I'm not Jewish. I understand what it means. And, you know, uh, we had a little bit of controversy at the in January when we had a guest on that was basically espousing Holocaust denial, right. which I don't buy. Right. I'm I'm that is that is not me. I'm you know I'm cool with the right if he has a right to say that. Yeah. But we but we also spent the last show half a show uh, kind of countering that. Mm-hmm. So you you know you you just really have to understand just like what words like words just have power. They really do. And when you're going to throw something around like anti-Semite to our, our self-loathing Jew or something like that, and, and it's more of just an insult, yeah, like right. you said, just to keep somebody in line. Right. Yeah, and the whole Holocaust thing, you know, it's it's a little hard to say Holocaust didn't happen when you have all these witnesses that walk through the camps in right. buried bodies. I mean, come on. Right. Um, persecution and suffering happens everywhere. That was a terrible, terrible thing we never want to repeat in history. And if it were if it were my people, I would understand me being very concerned and reticent about that. Uh one thing that is fair game and it gets off this topic, uh, but I think I've mentioned before, is that I didn't know until I understand more further how rabbinic Judaism evolved after the Bible days and how a frame of thinking was taught that reconciliation or, or attaining righteousness with God can be attained through suffering alone as opposed to repentance for wrongdoing. Yeah. That is, it was an alternative, and Rabbi Kiva largely was the one who, who did that. Um, because that is taught and that has been accepted, the Holocaust means extra significance for them because it is a means of earned right uh, righteousness before God without exploring... Why were we exiled? Why have we gone through these things in the history? And it's a very different teaching than what we see in the in the Bible. And so, given that this affects their mindset, that that it's more important not only just because they fear the next one, but because it was a milestone in in the evolution of the whole faith uh, to now believe that they deserved they they deserve the Holy Land and Israel not only just from mankind because of their suffering, but also from God. This is important to understand, because that is in the language of the arguments that they make, and someone who's uninformed, which has been like most of us, totally missed that. Uh, And I'm not saying I understand all We earned this through our collective sacrifice. That's right. That's right. And in fact, uh, when you get studying uh, the Zionist movement within Israel, uh, within their history, you, you find, and I quote some of these things in this book, that they willingly knew that they sacrificed a lot of their fellow Jews during the time of World War II to help expedite the founding of the nation of Israel, the the diaspora, as they're known, uh, outside, that it was actually, they saw that as an opportunity in essence to sacrifice some of their brethren indirectly to help cement the founding of the nation of Israel. Yeah. And I think that's something that really is worthy of debate, and for particularly Christian people who are the strongest supporters of Israel today, uh, which they see as monolithic and not as an assembly of 
mostly atheist, mixed with some hyper religious, some that are um, some atheists that are peace loving, some that are lesser so. It's a complex blend. But when we do that, we don't see all those dynamics going on. And to interact more constructively with them and with other third parties, we need to know these things. And even this whole thing of the Jewish magic, everybody, all your listeners need to know this, but people who tend to be a little religious themselves even more so. But it's fascinating for everybody to know. Yeah, uh, just just to add uh, real quick that, you know, history, um, we are we are taught in school that is just like a cut and dry thing. You, you, we are, we're almost caught. We're almost taught this melodramatic version where you have the good guys and you have the bad guys, and you know, especially with the history of Zionism, yeah, it, it's much more. It's much more complex. Right. Uh, not everybody was a Zionist Jew. Not everybody agreed with the founding that there should be a homeland in Palestine. Not everybody agreed with that at first. So there was definitely, definitely, it's definitely a much more complex issue. Mm-hmm. But one thing, but I wanted to, and one thing we all can agree on, I think we should all be able to, is yeah. that innocent people should be able to live free of threat, be they Jew, Christian, Muslim, unbeliever, who, yeah. whoever, people who are good that there are people of goodwill in all camps that just want to raise their families and have good communities, and they all need to live in peace and safety. In tranquility, not be exploited, you know, physically, economically, whatever. And we should agree to a lot of these ground states. And and if we can't agree on the fine points of the cosmology and things like that, at a minimum, just live like decent neighbors and apply yeah. apply the golden rule, which I've never it found just, anybody to make a good argument against the golden rule. It just sounds like just you just you just sound like you're just becoming like a hippie. I know. Future. I know. <laughs> You know, this is the stuff that kids in preschool understand, but, but grown-ups will shed blood yeah. to resist. Right, right, over their version of what's right. That's right. Well, let's talk about, I want to get into the magic stuff. Okay. And I want to talk about starting off, magic is prohibited right. in the Bible, and this is mostly in the Old Testament. Right. And this would mostly be the, what... You know, of course, the Jewish people would recognize as the as first five books of the Bible of the Torah, and I believe, like I think, the Tanakh is the rest of it. I'm not quite certain the, on that. The, but, the whole Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, yeah. we call it. Yeah, and then the first five is the Torah, right? So, what are some of those prohibitions against magic? Okay, all right. in the Bible, all right. You know, and these should have percolated amongst all the monotheists, where they generally accept this. But, but yeah. by the way, I, I know we had this long preamble, which I think needed to be said. Um, and you wanted me to start out by talking about uh, what got me in studying this. And I have that information queued up. But since it relates to Pulsa Denura, if you want, I can go back to it when we talk about Pulsa Denura, or yeah, I can bring it up now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, when we get to the more like sounds good uh, recent stuff, yeah, we, we can talk about the Pulsa Denura. Well, I've got I've got it queued up, so uh, we'll go there. But going back to the origins. Uh, uh, since I am not fully prepped, like the time when I have the books come out, I'm, I may just cite a little bit, even read some sentences from the book. I hope you don't mind. That's fine. Uh, and uh, just skim around, just because I don't want to miss anything. Then I'll go back and kick myself with the listeners on this. Um, the uh, 
I, I say in the book that, uh, and, and again, the Sorcerer's Script was not originally planned for this volume. It was shoehorned in. So this is not an exhaustive study, and I don't consider myself an expert. I've just come across information that has to be dealt with to understand things. So it's the beginning of a journey, maybe for myself and other listeners, too, and readers. But but to go back as a cursory kind of thing of what the Bible says about it, uh, it says that uh, the use of magic and divination, or what the Bible may refer to as sorcery or witchcraft, was widely practiced within ancient Israel, even though it was expressly forbidden by God's law. It was probably picked up in Egypt and from the wicked Canaanite peoples Israel supplanted, whose religions they were forbidden to adopt. The Torah makes such prohibitions clear in passages such as Deuteronomy 18, and even suggests such behavior was a major cause for the Canaanite nations to be judged. And here, here's an explicit passage out of Deuteronomy. Uh, it says, There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. For these nations, which thou shalt possess, hearkened unto observers of times and unto diviners. But as for thee, the Lord thy God hath not suffered thee to do, to do so to do. So, um... I want to make clear that if you look at the rest of God's communications with these people, he wanted them to have access to the supernatural. I mean, God God himself came down and visited from whatever dimension he is, and the cloud yeah. came from the mountain and the you know, sphere and to Moses and to different people. He, and even when they were in a camp, they could see the glow and the spirit of, of the the supernatural spirit of God right there within the tent in where they were living, in the middle of it. Yeah. So he was not putting up a firewall against mankind. Inter- there never seemed to be enough. Interacting with the supernatural. But <laughs> the fact is, yeah. since he was our creator, and, you know, your mom and dad, hopefully, unless you had a really rotten one, have your best interest in mind, <laughs> you know, they might show you how to build a campfire, but they don't want you going out and sticking your hand on a burner of a stove. Yeah. And what, what they can show you can be very wonderful if it's done in a, in a good, healthy, protected way. If it's done by, you know, a kid pulling up a stool and getting on the burner, it's bad stuff's going to happen. And unfortunately what people didn't understand in these areas is when they started opening these doors without a roadmap, without any kind of uh, way to check IDs of the supernatural entities they were involved it led them into destruction and depravity on their own. And what happened when they got to Canaan, the people that were in Canaan had been contacting these deities, and it had degenerated these people so badly that they were just taking their newborn babies, the most precious, innocent thing you can imagine in the world, and throwing them into a fiery bull like Moloch to incinerate these innocent babies. I mean, you really can't think of hardly anything that could be more depraved than that, and a bunch of other terrible stuff that was going on. Luke would probably think it's metal, but yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <coughs> that what happened was is that these forces took them over, 
And if you read yeah. the history of magic, the history of sorcery, it drives people mad. It literally does. Even the best historical records, guys like Dr. John D, other people, you know, uh, was it Alifas Levi and different people like this? The, these guys were, were driven largely to madness. Even Aleister Crowley oh, yeah. took himself to oblivion. He he did not accomplish anything with what he did. He didn't um, make the world a better place, didn't make himself better. He didn't make himself beloved of people. He alienated himself from everybody he knew. Most of the people around him committed suicide that got real close to him. So He was a heroin addict at the end of his life. Can you consider that a success? Did he accomplish something for it? Okay. (laughs) But there are other people in history who use prescribed methods of being able to access the supernatural and have made the world a far better place. And are are beloved. They may have even gone through hard times and suffering and things, but they prevailed, had joy through the midst of it. So what, what, what God is telling these people in Israel is, you do this kind of stuff, you're going to end up just like these people here. The, 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 these people in Canaan were so wicked around the, the world, the known ancient world, they were known as depraved. And they were they were self-destructive. And he says, this is the reason why they're being driven out, is because they're going down a path that was going down a path right before the flood. And right before the flood, people were so open into doing wicked things with these entities who hate mankind, by the way. And in fact, the, the sorcerer, is willing to hurt his fellow man to gain his own power. And so he's willing to take advantage of other people and hurt them to supposedly gain power from a demon who he doesn't know whether to trust or not and will destroy him. And so God did not want to see the world to go down that same path. And so he was warning them against doing these things and say, look, I drove these people out now because of this destructive path. You better not follow it. And sadly... Although it's glossed over in a lot of like the Christian Sunday school teaching and stuff, the overwhelming majority of the time it, within Israel, it was pursued. It was a rare exception when it was uh, not pursued. And what's even more distressing to people from my research was that uh, it really kicked up after the Bible days. And that was something I didn't know before I did my study was that it wasn't some kind of secret fringe thing going on by a few mad scientists or crazy people in a corner in a cult, but it was it became even more central uh, in what's going on. And it's really essential to understand these things. But uh, going on uh, with that, uh, some of the things that they were doing that were written about in the agent text were called um, magical warfare and the place, placing of curses or charms on others, but particularly fortune-telling and divination, such as, and I'm going to mispronounce these, but hyruspacy, which is the foretelling of the future by inspecting the entrails of animals. That was one of my favorites. Uh, <laughs> the use of amulets to ward off the evil eye. Uh, now, for some reason, these amulets are, are still the preferred choice in modern Israel today. That's what you read about in the Israeli newspapers today as we speak, is the use of these amulets. And in fact, um, we, I don't know if we'll get into this, but... Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu got his, who's beloved by Christians right now, wishing he was our president. Uh, yeah, and a lot of Republicans. Our Congress, yeah, wishing yeah. he was it. His, his national campaign was kicked off by aligning himself with a guy we'll talk about later, Rabbi Kaduri, and getting him to make these magical amulets people would wear that if they voted for him would become activated and they could use them as aphrodisiacs or to or to uh, put curses on their enemies and things like that. 
So you got a guy who, who, is, who is loved in churches who aligned himself with the leading sorcerer in Israel right off the bat. And these amulets are their, their preferred thing. And, in fact, you'll find them everywhere in Israel. Uh, they don't take the tour groups past them, not surprisingly. But if you're in Israel, you'll see them all the time. Um, it says, <laughs> the Torah even forbids magical practices such as hissing, which is the Hebrew nahash, which is a form of enchantment, foretelling by means of clouds or bird formations, muttering, sometimes associated with magical potions, gaining information from ghosts, which are called yede one, questioning corpses, uh, the use of charms, and even possibly the use of ventriloquism to other parts of the body, which was also done, I noticed, like the Greeks and Egyptians and others used that technique. Uh, and what I do, this distinguishes, I say, from God's gift given to some people to interpret dreams, since these are giftings and dream revelations at God's discretion, as opposed to those who seek greater knowledge than that normally available for the co- and, and for the purposes of their own agendas and pursuits. So there's, there's a lot of supernatural things like that that God gives people, but it's always to accomplish a greater purpose for the greater good of all. But people who pursue these magical acts usually have their own personal agenda. The bird formations thing, that's something I've never heard of. <laughs> yeah, really, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Anything that would be some kind of pattern or something that can be extracted from it. Uh, you know, and you got to ask your stuff like the Bible codes. These Bible codes yeah. have been popular lately. They fall right in this category. And I know that'll make up people a lot of upset, but it's the roots that, of this stuff. That that stuff is starting to come back, too, because that was a big thing back in the late 90s. They had the Bible code and, it, and all this stuff. And, it tick- and now it's, that's starting to come back now. It tickles people's ears uh, yeah. to find things like that. Uh, there's another really interesting passage in Ezekiel 13, 18. Where, where God warns these women who, quote, sew pillows to all armholes and, quote, make kerchiefs upon the head of every stature to hunt souls, which, <laughs> which were something uh, like a magical amulet they made. Yeah. And they, they were mounted sort of similar to how God made these, uh, what he described uh, that evolved into tefillin, about where they would put it on their head or their <laughs> wrist. Yeah, that had the Torah in it, worn on the body. Uh, eventually, when God said, you know, to keep it on your mind and your hand, uh, it evolved into, Jews like to make everything really tightly defined. And so they made it where they literally have these boxes, you see, they were on their forehead and their wrist, which is very, very interesting when you think about the forehead and the wrist is where, the in Revelation, it says the mark of the beast goes. Hmm. Uh, and they have a key point when it comes into magical workings, you know, when you do motions with the hands. And, of course, we know the forehead and its association with the pineal gland and things like that. These seem to be portals from the physical body to the supernatural, particularly through the use of ritual that makes things happen. And so there's something very important about those areas. But in that same passage, God says he's against the sorceress, that does this. He says, I'm against your pillows wherewith ye hunt the souls to make them fly, and I will tear them from your arms, and I will let the souls go, even the souls ye hunt to make them fly. Your kerchiefs I will also tear and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall no more in your hand be hunted. And the, This is in Revelation? No, this is in Ezekiel 13. Okay. And the, the picture is, is that the, these people use sorcery to put their fellow people around them into bondage. 
And there's been pictures we've seen in movies and stuff of people who hold souls and possess them and things like that. And yeah. God is in the liberating business. He is the ultimate liberator. And anybody who's in that kind of bondage, he's going to destroy the people who do that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, they were supposed to, over and over again, directed to cl- cleanse this kind of activity from the land uh, in the idolatry and pagan worship. And sometimes they were successful, but often they would leave these high places untouched, even if they were near the temple. Like they would maybe clear out the temple and get rid of the stuff around there, but they you'd still see it around. It never totally got rid of it uh, around the area. But one of the most chilling ones it talked about, and this, this was written at the time of the exile, when they took the first group of Jews, Nebuchadnezzar did, to, to Babylon. And there was still a little bit of a subjugated um, Jewish kingdom back in Israel that uh, finally rebelled completely against Nebuchadnezzar, and then they were all taken. But initially, there, there was a priest, Ezekiel, that was there, and he was given a vision by God where he was shown what was going on in the temple. And he kept seeing more and more depraved activity right on the temple grounds going on. Um, and it included the 70 elders of the Sanhedrin, which were the top bot, governing body representatives, like a congress. Um, and they actually had women weeping for Tammuz in there, which is part of the whole Babylonian mystery religion of old. Yeah, yeah. And they, it says that they had men praying to the sun in the east which we know is Helios in, in the Greek, uh, Greek terms or Egyptian. And, and funny, Helios comes up later in the magical texts that were written after the Bible, that this, re- this worship of the sun is, still has some presence in, in the Jewish faith with turning their backs to the temple. And it says as a result, they filled the land with violence. And that's what happens when you pursue these kind of things. A net result is violence happens. And in fact, it makes me wonder if some of these areas of the world where this violence is rampant, be it in the Middle East or elsewhere, some of it is because of this magical stuff is being performed, and it provides an environment for violence to happen as a result. Hmm. In fact, I had, a, I, I had a thought today, brand new thought today, that people have scratched their heads that have studied the Bible, that why in the New Testament is there all this stuff about demons? why they haven't cast out demons, and demons are tormenting people and everything in the land, and why is this such a big thing? And it made me wonder, having studied this and reviewing this in preparation for this, that some reason why those demons were present was that they were being invoked in magical acts in what happened particularly after the exile, when they returned, when things became more entrenched in the pursuit of sorcery, if if they actually were doing it so much that they were actually calling out the names of demons to work for them. Solomon supposedly did it a long time ago, but particularly yeah. later after they returned to the temple, they were doing this a lot. They learned a lot of stuff in Chaldea, according to the Jewish text, on, on how to do this. And in fact, they had just created an environment where demons could have free run in the land when Jesus showed up. I mean, there is something that in the occult called the Key of Solomon, and it's just supposedly what the yeah. the demons that Solomon could conjure up, and that he supposedly mm-hmm. could like control demons, which I think will um, yeah. be like. If we fast forward to now, someone we're going to talk about uh, could also claim that he could do that. Yeah, and the Seal of Solomon, 
which you'll find right there in the middle of the Israeli flag. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, but Star David. Yeah. The, the other place where this is true is in Babylon itself. If you've ever read any of the historical texts, the old ones about life in Babylon, the people themselves in Babylon were mortified of these evil spirits because they were being attacked all the time in their homes. And it was like every day was a battle with, you know, you, you've studied ghosts and hauntings and stuff like that. Yeah. But the ultimate environment was in Babylon, where this was so common, because it really was a melting pot for the <laughs> world, for learning from the Far East, from Egypt, from places like that. And it was really incubated, this teaching. And that's why you see also a lot of the worst demons and spirits, even talked about in the Bible, find a home in Babylon and in the last days, are actually unleashed from the Tigris and Euphrates River. Uh, when you mm. when you create an environment where you pursue unlawful, spiritually unlawful acts like this, you're basically creating an environment of oppression that will affect not only you but your whole community. It'll it'll bring the whole crowd down, and th- this is why towns get a bad reputation. You know, sort of the Amityville kind of thing, you know, or yeah. the towns with a cloud over it. Uh, when things happen. So, but uh, uh, even in the New Testament, uh, this stuff happened all the time. The apostles confronted this guy called Simon the Sorcerer, and it says in Acts 8 that he used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. And then he tried to, um, he saw that, that the apostles had greater power through the Holy Spirit so he wanted to become a Christian, too, to get that power. And then he went so far as to try to buy the Holy Ghost, to buy it from them, because he thought it was like a trick, because that's what sorcerers do. They learn a new power, and then they pay the other guys how to learn the incantations or rituals. And Peter and John could have just struck him dead for doing something that evil, but they actually said, you know, we need to pray that you'll knock this off. Don't do this. You're you're treading on dangerous ground here, buddy. And uh, they tried to save him from making this terrible mistake. But uh, even Paul and Barnabas ran into a more interesting one. He was a sorcerer uh, called Bar-Jesus. It says he was a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, also known as Elymas the Sorcerer in Acts 13. And uh, what had happened was they were talking to the head guy at Cyprus, the Roman deputy that ran the, the island of Cyprus, and he was interested in getting in the Christian faith. And the sorcerer was trying to stop him from doing that. And so Paul called him a child of the devil and an enemy of, of unrighteousness who were perverting the ways of the Lord and struck him with a temporary blindness. And when the Roman deputy saw this, he became a Christian as a result. And and this is not something that's disputed by the Jews. In fact, I noticed... Uh, the Jewish Encyclopedia uh, entry on Bar-Jesus, his name also he was conflated with Simon Magus. It says it's mentioned by the Jewish historian Josephus as Simon, a Jew born in Cyprus, uh, and was a, a friend of Felix, the procurator of Judea, and uh, who pretended to be a magician and was employed by him to seduce a woman from her husband for his own possession. And that also went on too where kings or wealthy people would get these sorcerers to uh, maybe get rid of their spouse, to get rid of another woman or aphrodisiac or things like that. But, it's nice stuff. Yeah, yeah. But but what did happen when the gospel was preached, when the Holy Spirit came through, 
was much more powerful than what the sorcerers could do. It says in, uh, in Ephesus, Ephesus was the second biggest city in the Roman Empire. And it was a real home of pagan worship. It was the center of Diana worship at Ephesus. Uh, and it says, because they saw the power of God and things like this in Acts 19, it says, many of them which used curious arts brought their books together, burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them, and it was 50,000 pieces of silver. So mildly grew the word of God. And so they're, they're scrolls. They took these books and scrolls of these magical works and just burned them because uh, obviously they found something better there. So, Well, let me ask, too, about uh, let's move on to yeah. Kabbalah. And this is the main form of Jewish magic. This is kind of the more and also the more popularized now. You hear about, about this a lot not just in uh, the Jewish religion, but it's become a popular thing in the New Age now as well. Uh, like Alan Moore is big into it, you know the the, yeah. the comic book author, and you know, I, and I would maintain, I think you would too, as, as as an occultist, and like you know, like also the Zohar, which I believe is uh, part of the writings of Kabbalah, right. and you know, kind of like the influences from. Like maybe like the East, like uh, I think there's some influence from Hinduism even in Kabbalah, and maybe Zoroastrianism too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, th- this is another area of confusion for people, and I am not an academic that's an expert. I I can only quote what I have read from supposed experts, and most of that is from Jewish sources. Yeah. Um, but that when you think of Kabbalah, most people think of the the seraphot and the tree of life and this mystical kind of thing that you know and Madonna and people like that getting involved in this right. that's commonly known as speculative Kabbalah. The speculative Kabbalah sort of has a corollary with speculative Freemasonry. In fact, speculative Kabbalah would probably have some precursor contribution to Freemasonry in that regard. Um, but. It, it's more of an intellectual exercise of depth. There's another form that's called meditative Kabbalah, where someone through meditation or other ecstatic experiences try to unite with the divine through these mystical ways. And then there's another older form that's called practical Kabbalah. Yeah. And practical Kabbalah, the, I guess the best way to compare it would be akin to folk religion. And... This is the use of amulets, charms, things like this, to be able to get your way, to curse your enemies, to, um, like I said, aphrodisiacs, you know, good health, good luck, those kind of things. And that goes back way, way, way before the the Zohar and speculative Kabbalah. Practical Kabbalah, some of the the, uh, books like the the Sefer or scroll Harazim, goes back to the 2nd or 3rd century A.D. Uh, there's a, there's another one that, that we may cite in here that's around 2nd century, that at least as far as I can track. It may go well before that, and there's some suggestions it goes way back before the time of Christ. Uh, and then sometime before that, it was carrying down orally uh, the information. But the practical Kabbalah goes way, way back to that era. And in fact, it's alluded to even in the Talmud, which the Mishnah was started to put together, I guess, probably around 2nd AD, 2nd century, 2nd uh, or 3rd century, uh, where they would talk about the heads of the uh, the rabbinic council 
would actually use these techniques to magically create a calf, like the uh, Nazi or Prince, the head, the head there. Uh, Judah would actually work with the students to, to magically create a calf for the Sabbath. Okay. Now, if you read that in the Old Testament doing it, you would next expect a prophet to show up and to take him out. Yeah. But by this time, Judaism had changed so drastically after the rejection of Jesus that this stuff was just accepted. Uh, once you became a sage or one of the top rabbinic guys on the council, uh, you were no longer questioned. In fact, in the Talmud it says that even the voice from God himself, or they call the Beth Cole, cannot come challenge the ruling of the rabbinic council of sages. So that's pretty powerful. Hmm. So um, uh, so, so that, that ability goes way, way back to the early days. And speculative Kabbalah and the Zohar that came along with it was, was a, somewhat a little bit of a pushback. Uh, it wasn't an antithesis, but it tried to be a more highbrow approach. And the Zohar came out of um, basically the area of Spain, general area, uh, in the 12th century. And uh, it took teachings that were supposedly uh, very, very ancient, but had been passed orally, and put it down. And there was some debate in Judaism was, did this guy make it up, or, or was it truly you know, passed down from the ancients? And uh, the general consensus is that it's legitimate. And a lot of this kind of writing of that era, the medieval era of Jewish magic and mystical writings, were because they had the highest degree of safety in the areas that were Muslim-controlled. Right. The area of Muslim control, they flourished. They had, they had uh, colleges and schools and all this other kind of stuff and just did their own Which thing. Spain was, yeah. And it wasn't until the Christians came in and you know, the Inquisition came with it uh, and the Muslims protected the Jews all the way down to the little piece of Granada they had until uh, finally the Muslims were defeated there and the Alhambra Decree basically m- meant that Jews had to convert or die. And uh, so the Muslims sent these ships to rescue the Jews, took them away from the Christian killing, uh, and took them to places like Eastern Europe, North Africa, and the like. But by that I time, thought the Muslims just hated everybody. I thought they hated everybody. I, I can't and I we'll understand ki- And this. we'll kill them immediately. And but. I don't know why for a thousand <laughs> years Christians and Jews have lived in Muslim-controlled lands for thousands of years and haven't been massacred yet. Uh, and in fact, those people have voluntarily stayed there. So yeah, I don't, I don't understand. That's another cognitive dissonance. Uh, well, until we invaded Iraq, and then all of a sudden the Christians, <clears throat> the, yeah, the Christians started leaving, and yeah, yeah, until we, until we rescued everybody. Uh, <laughs> uh, but Thanks, uh, w. yeah, well, let me tell you a little bit more about this. Uh, um, Kabbalah, I'm going to read a little bit out of the book here. Kabbalah, which means received tradition, is sought by its adherents to have been originated in the principles and basic understandings in the era before the world's religions were formed in the earliest eras of creation. Now, I get this stuff from uh, Jewish encyclopedia, you know, simple sources. Uh, some even consider it the true meaning of Judaism, but it was not more formally defined and delineated until the Middle Ages in France and Spain. Its deeper concepts give another perspective on the interpretation of Jewish scriptures and primary rabbinical writings, and even affects their sciences, arts, and political systems, much like Islam. 
Uh, it refer- received further refinement in the 16th century in Ottoman Palestine, with other communities further evolving into what was, became Hasidic Judaism, and a little bit more of that as- ecstatic experience meditative Kabbalah. Uh, earlier books on mystical Judaism had been in use, such as the Sefer Yetzira from the 2nd century CE, which according to the Talmud, which is now the primary text of Judaism, according to the Talmud, the Sefer Yetzira was used by pupils of the esteemed Nazi Judah, the very wealthy leader of the Sanhedrin and compiler of the Mishnah, uh, who was well-liked by the Roman emperor, to magically create a calf to eat on the Sabbath as well as being allegedly responsible for the miracles produced by other rabbis of the Tanaic era, which was the era just after the Christian Bible closed. Um, now, on the Sefer Yetzirah, the Jewish encyclopedia says that the Sefer Yetzirah featured magical notions originating from the Babylonians and Egyptians, also with an astrological and Gnostic emphasis, and that, quote, this work had a greater influence on the development of the Jewish mind than almost any other book after the completion of the Talmud, unquote. While noting the document's assertions that, quote, the dragon rules the world and that, quote, good and evil have no real existence. Hmm. But The dragon rules the world? That's right. Now, it's, import- it's important that the reliable Jewish source says that this magic book is second only to the Talmud in defining the modern Jewish mind. So I would think it might be important for us to understand it. If we're going to understand dealing with this community in the world today is to understand what effects it has. Um, Now, about the Zohar, which is what is the the best known uh, work of uh, speculative Kabbalah from the 12th century, um, it was published by Jewish scholar Moses Ben Shem Tob de Leon in the south of Spain, and it actually it says 13th century. It passed to that, uh, claiming to be a compilation of the writings of the miracle-working second-century Jewish sage Simeon Ben Yochai, which is a famous Jewish sage of that era. They know, and he it claims to have uh, taken the information from that. Um, uh, some of the things, uh, in fact, the important thing to notice from from these texts is that Orthodox Jews consider Kabbalistic teaching in general as essential and authentic Jewish doctrine. Um, and in the now that's important to know because many people think Kabbalah is a fringe cult movement. That's right. just people like ex- extreme cult, New Age. But no, Kabbalah has a central role in your major Jewish uh, organizations. You know, the, particularly the the more Orthodox type. Um, it, it's it's front and central in their liturgy and things like this. Um, the the Jewish Encyclopedia says further that it is necessary to add, to understand the Zohar. It is necessary to ascertain where and when the Jews became acquainted with Hindu philosophy, which more than any other exert, exert, exercised an influence on the Zohar. Unquote. Uh, they note that Jewish groups in Persia were influenced by the Vedanta school of Hindu philosophers abstaining from meat and developing a mystical versus literal interpretation of the Torah, and developed secret writings which form the basis of the Zohar as a, quote, mystical commentary on the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, as the Upanishads are the mystical interpretation of the Hindu Vedas and other Brahmanic scriptures. Um, They note that... uh, 
that within Judaism it is to be placed on the same level with the Bible, and that, quote, representatives of Talmudic Judaism began to regard it as a sacred book, uh, the Zohar, and to invoke its authority in the decision of some ritual questions, highly regarding its, quote, glorification of man, unquote, and other principles, quote, which are more in keeping with the spirit of Talmudic Judaism. Wow. So you can see the central emphasis it has in how it is not a fringe belief, but it infuses itself into mainstream Judaism itself. Now, if you told the average Christian who was a strong Zionist supporter uh-huh. that the, the guys you're supporting and their fundamental teachings are not what you read in Sunday school, but they're they're underpinned by Hindu, what we would call New Age teachings, they would refuse to believe it. <laughs> right. Except that the, the 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 most reliable Jewish references make it so clear. Well, this kind of goes back a little bit to um, what we're talking about with the Bible code a little bit. And then also I wanted to make the point that, you know, like this whole blood moon thing that is going on. I mean, like there's this, you know, we, we talk about, you know, evangelical Christians or, or just mainstream Christians, really. We just talk about, you know, how you're not supposed to dabble into astrology. Yeah. But that just seems to me to be astrology. I think you had something you are going to ask, Rob. Hmm? Yeah. No, no, okay. No. Yeah. Well, the the other thing that's interesting about Kabbalah, and this really shows our ignorance as non-Jews of Jewish teaching, is that they have this view of what's not, they call themselves monotheists, the ultimate monotheist, but it yeah. almost it looks similar to a pantheon of, of gods. You know, while, while we try to explain in the Christian world, the Trinity is that you really have one harmonious mind that is expressed in three, for lack of a better word, facets, manifestations, dimensions, and right. a Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they actually get more akin, it seems like, to what you would picture a Greek pantheon, where they have a female deity, a Shekinah, and they have all these different sub-deities. And um, one thing I was surprised to learn was that um, this also is in line with, with sort of Gnostic teaching that there are different generations of yes. these gods. Uh, and you see part of it, it ap- appears to me, from the sources I've read, with the, uh, with the Zohar and with Kabbalah, but also in, in, in Gnosticism. And it was even referred to in the New Testament when it talked about people pursuing these uh, generations, like uh, not the word mindless, but something similar to that, useless type uh, pursuit of understanding generations. And when I did some research, I found out that many people think they're talking about like the Jewish generations of like their credentials of what tribe of Israel you're from and pedigree. When when it says singular generation, it may imply that. But all the passages where it talks about the study of generations, uh, the Bible references say that they're talking about this Gnostic slash Kabbalic pursuit of these lesser deities. That birth, like, you know, it's like wisdom as a goddess. Uh, different kind mm-hmm. of attributes are all a god, and they birth, they get together, mate, and birth another attribute yeah. or things like this. And it would really blow the average Christian's minds to know that's how complex and how far away yeah. from the simple uh, Old Testament teaching that, that Judaism is today. And all that stuff has a big, big influence on the way they think. Isn't there something with the Star of David uh, where that um, 
because it's two triangles, one uh, one is upright, one is down. That that's actually a symbolism of the of Yahweh and Shekinah having sex. Uh, I've I've seen that in, in references yeah. too. Yeah, where they where they mention that as well too. Um, uh, there there's some some more interesting things uh, re- regarding this. It says that uh, um, in in another part of the Jewish Encyclopedia entry on Kabbalah, it says, "quote The belief in the magic power of the letters of the Tetragrammaton, which are the the four letters the Jews always emphasize as the name of God, yeah. uh, they lost the rest of his name." They were entrusted with holy scriptures and lost God's name. Uh, that, not not Sorry. not to make fun of them or anything. But, uh, you had one job. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> keep the client's name. It would be an important thing. Uh, the one you have to keep happy. Your customer. Uh, it's a belief, they say the belief in the magic power of the letters of the Tetragrammaton and the other names of the deity seem to have originated in Chaldea. Yeah. Uh, concerning its association with Gnosticism, the Jewish Encyclopedia notes that, quote, Gnosticism was Jewish in character long before it became Christian, and that, quote, it seems to have been the first attempt on the part of the Jewish sages to give the empirical mystical lore, with the help of Platonic and Pythagorean or Stoic ideas, a speculative turn. Okay, and so th- this is how the Jews are quoting about themselves. Now, one of the interesting parts here, it says in the same reference site, that, quote, the secrets of theurgic Kabbalah, where theurgic means using magical acts to invoke God, are not lightly divulged. And yet the Testament of Solomon recently brought to light the whole system of conjuration of angels and demons by which the evil spirits were exercised. Even the magic sign or seal of Solomon, now remember, this is Jewish Encyclopedia, known to the medieval world, or medieval Jew, as the Megan David, or David, has been resurrected. Okay, so the, the, the Megan David, which is the symbol of modern Israel, Zionism, and on their flag, is clearly defined here to have its magical sorcery roots within the Jewish Encyclopedia. Yeah. And in, I've lost my place here, bear with me, I will... Uh, Add, add a little bit more to it here. It says that, uh, um, let's see here. Okay, um, I, I, I know that this same Megan David, the Star of David, was soon chosen to be the symbol of Zionism uh, in Blazon on their flag today. The Jewish encyclopedia entry for Megan D- Dawid, or Megan David, uh, notes that the 12th century Jewish text referred to it as a sign on amulets with its origins not in the rabbinical tradition, but rather in the magical side of Judaism. Wow. It also states that... Interesting. It also states that Kabbalists use the image on their amulets. Hmm. So, isn't that something that maybe Zionist Christians, maybe I'll have a discussion about? <laughs> um, Just slightly. Because Stephen, you know, the deacon Stephen and Acts... Uh, he had a discussion about this stuff in Acts 7 when he was preaching to him. He he said, regarding the Hebrew ancestors in the wilderness, when he was talking to him, he said, quote, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Rimphan, figures which ye made to worship them. Now, he was talking about when they were coming up out of Egypt. They brought their star of Rimphan with them. Now, in Thayer's Greek lexicon, 
it says there that Rimfan or Rifon is commonly associated with the god Saturn. It appears to be an identical reference to Kayun, both which mean an image or pillar, as well as an association with Saturn, as cited by the prophet Amos when he cites, But ye have borne your the tabernacle, and this comes from Amos, the tabernacle of your Moloch and Kayun, your images, the star of your God, which you made to yourselves. Now, in the History and Practice of Magic, Volume 2, it is noted that the six-pointed star hexagram is known as the Talisman of Saturn, as well as the Seal of Solomon, and it was used for conjuring spirits in the practice of witchcraft. Uh, of which it should be noted that Solomon also built the high places for the worship of Moloch in 1 Kings 11. Um, e- even Messianic Jewish people mention this, like uh, Dr. Jeffrey Seif, who was on Future Quake, uh, and a staunch Messianic Jewish Christian, uh, in his book, Making Our Peace with the Wars of the Sands, says that, quote, amongst Jews there's a long-standing tradition connecting a star with deliverance and salvation. In the 2nd century A.D., when some of Judaism's endorsed rabbis thought the Messiah had come, they named the pretender Bar Kokhba as the promised one. His name means son of the star. They were so serious that they even minted coins with his name in this image. Similarly, in the 20th century, when modern Jews were looking for a symbol of deliverance and national hope, they chose a star and placed the Star of David on the national flag. And sure enough, this, this star is that same Star of David back then. It, it, was a, it represented Jews taking matters into their own hands. Hmm. Whether it was a golem of Prague that they yeah. created to protect themselves in the ghettos of Prague, whether it was anointing a son of a star with Bar Kokhba, or whether it's modern-day Israel itself and the mysticism that they put behind the nuclear weapons that they have uh, produced. Blessing those nukes. While today they they believe it's, it is appropriate to preemptively attack a nation who they understand is pursuing nukes and don't trust them to be honest brokers in treaties. Yep. And I guess it's a classic case of takes one to know one because – in the in the mid '60s, we had guys like uh, Rabin, who I believe was something like Secretary of State uh, in Israel at the time, was was signing official documents in Israel before Johnson, confirming that they were taking an oath not to produce nuclear weapons, while simultaneously they were making nuclear weapons in Israel right. at the same time. And uh, David Ben Gurion, the first president of, of Israel even has some quotes I have in a book where he sort of gives a mystical significance to nuclear weapons. He, said, well, the, he says the Jewish mind created the nuclear bomb. Is it not appropriate that we should possess it? You know, that's the, that's the gorilla. That's really the gorilla in the room over there in the Middle East because no one really wants to come out and say that Israel has nuclear weapons, but they do. Everybody knows it. Uh, it's not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I put a lot of information on the table, even going back to 1960. Time Magazine and other sources were confirming it was going on while while the denials were ongoing. Um, and as I mentioned, that I mentioned this on uh, Derek Gilbert show briefly. Uh, they even went so far as to try to get uh, Jack Parsons, the the top occultist magician in America, and the second, really second command to uh, Alistair Crowley himself, uh, to get him to come to Israel 
they were going to put him at the Technion Institute, which is right there on a mystical holy site there on Mount Carmel, uh, close to what these places where he said he actually uh, um, did his uh, like uh, astral projections. Uh, and they were going to have him there taking over these projects. It's interesting how these people keep popping up. Yeah. Especially on this show. Uh-huh. Uh, let's, I want to move to talk about the more recent incidents, the more recent examples of Jewish magic as it is applied today. Okay. And we were mentioned before this, this whole thing about the, uh, the pulse of Denora. Yeah. And one of the things that got you interested in studying this was this kind of curse called the pulse of Denora that was leveled on, uh, our sec- secretary of state, John Kerry. Yeah. I don't know if they can whether that was to make his head bigger or something. Well, they, they they didn't quite get to the Pulse of Denira part, but as I started researching this letter that came out right while I was writing a my much more scaled down version of this study, yeah. uh, there there was a big article even made to front of Drudge things like this, um, right when when Secretary of State Kerry was trying to come up with a way to have peace in the Middle East, people wouldn't kill each other. Um, there was articles and they were reported everywhere, but, um, I'll just cite one of them here on Israel national news. It says that a group of rabbis from the committee to save the land and people of Israel, uh, they call it SOS, sent a letter to secretary of state, John Kerry, condemning his actions to help bring peace to the middle East. These prominent rabbis assigned the letter included the emeritus head of the Haifa rabbinical court, the chairman of the temple Institute, who is planning to build a new temple in Jerusalem and is a big fan of a lot of evangelical Christians in America, the dean of the Institute for the Complete Code of Maimonides, and other Jewish leaders. The story states states that, quote, the letter closed with a reference to the upcoming Jewish holiday of Purim, in which the book of Esther records Haman's genocidal plots against the Jewish people were turned against him, and he was hung on the same very same gallows he had prepared for Mordecai the Jew. Yeah. Now that's taken right out of the letter, and he he they warned uh, a verse, uh, the Bible where it says, "Conspire a plan, it will be frustrated. Talk the talk, and it will not be fulfilled, for God is with us." And then they put Isaiah nine five at the end of it, um, and they they close by saying, "Your incessant efforts to expropriate integral parts of the Holy Land and hand them over to Abbas's terrorist gang." Gang amount to a declaration of war against the creator and ruler of the universe. For God awarded the entire land of Israel to our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they bequeath it as an everlasting inheritance to their descendants, the Jewish people, till the end of time. If you continue on this destructive path, you will ensure your everlasting disgrace in Jewish history for bringing calamity upon the Jewish people. Like Nebuchadnezzar and Titus, who destroyed respectively the first and second great temples of the entire holy city of Jerusalem, and who, by heavenly punishment, brought eventual disaster on themselves too. By the power of our holy Torah, we admonish you to cease immediately your efforts to achieve these disastrous agreements in order to avoid severe heavenly punishment for everyone involved. Now, Some strong language. A couple things. Yeah, and this was the official letter that was circulated. Okay. Now, uh, a couple of interesting things that they noticed was that they talk about the people who destroyed the first and second temples. If you read the the text carefully, you'll find out that God himself was the one who destroyed those temples. Hmm. He used these guys as as his purpose to do it, but he destroyed them 
because they had totally profaned it. They'd profaned his name. And so they're seeing these outsiders as, as being the ones doing it, and I'm not trying to say Nebuchadnezzar and Titus were good guys, although the last word we hear of Nebuchadnezzar, and they, and they say that they brought disaster on themselves, but the last word we hear in the Bible of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, God took him through a trial to get him to repent, and Nebuchadnezzar repented. And he praised the God of heaven. That's the last we hear of him. And I presume we will see him in heaven. Uh, but in these guys, uh, you know, he, he didn't do what they wanted, so so he's bad news. Um, but one of the most interesting things is they quote this verse and give Isaiah 9, 5 on it. And I won't go into all of it, but actually these experts on the on the the Tanakh, on the Hebrew uh, Bible, misquote the verse and the citation they give. And I had to go so far as to get a copy of the original letter in Hebrew and have somebody translate it for me. And and in fact, turns (laughs) out that these experts in the law gave the wrong verse. So then the question comes, these guys study it backwards and forwards their entire life. There's a lot of them that can recite the entire from cover to cover, the Tanakh. How could they make, and this is a whole group of the experts, how could they make such a simplistic error? And that's a whole other kettle of fish I discuss in the book. But what is not uncommon is when there are hidden subtext or messages sent in things like this. What appears to be an error, in fact, is not. And when you see that the passages that, that match up with what they're talking about, it it really talks about warnings of bringing civil war on people within their own camp that don't want war, and that uh, the more aggressive zealot patriots in their midst will actually create civil war and will even make bloody garments for part of their sake. And uh, our, our good friend Robert Hyde mentioned to me that this reminded him of the story of Joseph, where the the original sons that made up the 12 tribes of Israel uh, fooled their father Israel by showing them bloody garments. And basically, it was sort of a false flag terror event. Yeah. Right back in the Old Testament, where they implied that he had been killed and something had happened, where they misled right. you know, their own patriarch and, and fellow. And so, don't be surprised a little bit of anything might happen in Israel. One of the things that's happening now is that the young people in Israel, um, who are generally not religious are finding it untenable to live there anymore, just economically, much less the other tensions. And they're leaving in mass. And it's a it's been yeah, a big I've story. Yeah. A lot of yeah. them are going to Berlin or places like this where the cost of living's a lot less. It's an internet phenomenon, you know, they're putting in the stuff and people are leaving. Meanwhile, the ultra religious, uh, who are the most staunch enemies of Christians, as well as Jews, uh, they are breeding so fast, and they have special privilege position by, by the uh, dictates of the government. I almost said constitution, but the uh, Israeli government has no constitution. Right. I'm saying they have no Bill of Rights. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like the British system in a way. But they yeah. have special provisions, um, and so they are growing so large that the Jewish sources that I read estimate that they will have a numerical advantage, the extremist Hasidic groups, the settler group, in like the 2050s, which is not that long ago. I mean, I may see that. 
in right. my the opinion. irony of this is is that you know if you if you look back in history and the the foundation of the state of Israel it was the more orthodox it was the Hasidic a lot of and that's includes the Hasidic Jews that were against the founding of the state of Israel because they said that only the Messiah could found, could found a state. Uh, and I have a big section that talks about that yeah. in my book that the people who were seriously religiously observant uh, said this is not God's order on how he is the one to dictate when we come out of our, uh, you know, out of our suffering. And in fact, one of the most enlightening things they said is it's one thing to go live in Palestine to go live there, but don't go take over the government. Don't go, uh, they said the Arabs have been good to us. Here's what they say. The Jews say, the Arabs have been good to us when we live there. They've taken care of us. Don't go in there and take over their government. And in fact, I have a quotation from the head rabbi of Jerusalem who signed this document. This was in the 1930s, I seem to recollect, assuring yeah. the Muslim community and Jewish community, he says, the Jews have no intention whatsoever for, for taking over the government, Jerusalem, Temple Mount. We are grateful to be able to live here. We appreciate you as brothers. We thank you for taking care of us. We would just like well, to live here for safekeeping. Well, that was not what Jabotinsky and the Marxist Zionist movement had in mind. No. They had something totally yeah. different in mind. It had nothing to do with God or the Bible or his will or whatever. Uh, they were influenced by you know, people like Moses Hess that really founded it. He was a guy that really helped inspire Karl Marx. You know, he's the guy who taught him religions, the opium of the people. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that whole influence was, was going on as well, too. So you're seeing a polarization, but this 2050s dominance in the population occurs not even considering the rapid departure of the secular Jews. So likely it could happen even earlier. But regardless of when they have a numerical majority, the average Israeli says that the ultra-religious groups already have a commanding control now because they have, in a parliamentary system, they have the key swing party vote. They control the votes that form the coalition government. So they right. get to name their ticket in terms of the policies. Yeah. on what, And look at how close the election is right now. Netanyahu got in by a razor-thin majority last time. Uh, where he could form a, a government. And every time that's true, these guys have tremendous leverage on which groups they go with and what kind of concessions they get. So uh, the average Israeli would say they already have an overwhelming influence, um, and it will only increase um, in the days ahead. So you're you're going to see, rather than a moderation, I think you're going to see a more extremist position dominate within Israel. And the likelihood for violence and widespread bloodshed is going to increase dramatically, regardless of what the Muslim community does or anybody else over there. So, Mike, what is um, what is a pulsa denora? What okay. is its purpose? Let me see if I can. I'll I'll try to find that here, and we will uh, we will review it here. Uh, it's all right. I didn't call you by your pseudonym there. Uh, all right. <laughs> Just call me to dinner. Well, I, I can tell you some names I was called from the Messianic crowd after that last interview. Uh -oh. I was called Heretic, Jerk. Dr. Heretic, I like yeah, that. Her, her, Pseudo-researcher. <laughs> and these are people who have never met me nor looked at my book or the references. Yeah. But they, they've at least figured that part out. So, 
God love them. I just pray that we would all be one one day. Okay, um, now, this is the crowd that's part of, like, the settlement community doing this stuff. That are the ones that, that chase out people out of their homes in the settlements. They're the ones when Christian aid workers work over there. Uh, they were caught recently, I quote them in the news here, saying, we crucified your Jesus, we'll crucify you too. <laughs> and, and and bomb moments of like and you know amazingly Christian media never cites these these sources. Oh. So I'm I'm really I'm surprised that they don't. It's um, not going to be on the headline of World Net Daily anytime soon. This ties into the assassination of Prime Minister Rabin. Uh, yeah. They helped cultivate the, the gentleman who the young man who shot him, and of course even the secular government helped because there was a fake a hard right-wing group that was set up by Shin Bet, which is their FBI. And I can only describe it as a COINTELPRO-type program. They had set up to to form false extreme right groups, I guess, to discredit them. But uh, this agent actually helped train the, the gentleman, I think it's Egal Amir, I believe is his name, that yeah. shot uh, Rabin. Um, but he, this Amir is seen as just a patron saint. They've... You know, these guys, they name street names after them, just like the guy, Beirut Goldstein, who shot the the Muslims who were in the mosque praying, shot them in the back, and the children and women. They have a street, nice. street in his honor and and uh, honor them. So on, on to... Very loving. Yeah. Uh, here's one citation I give to explain the Pulsa de Nura. Um, one, one source, this is uh, from a book, Murder in the Name of God, where religious extremism can lead. Now, this is by that incredible anti-Semitic group called the American Council for Judaism. <laughs> <laughs> so you you know they're they're suspect as being Jew haters. Oh, so Stormfront then the right. They went Stormfront. The American Council for Judaism <laughs> wrote "Murder in the Name of God." Okay, and they they one of their citations they talk about strange religious acts and pronouncements by key figures in this movement. Uh, uh, in fact, one of them mentions that one of Israel's leading journalists, uh, talking about this gentleman, Carp, Michael Carpet, who's one of the co-authors of this, who had served for years as editor-in-chief of Mabat, Israel's television primetime news broadcast. This is the guy writing this, okay? Uh, they allege, he and his co-author, that two weeks before the assassination of Rabin, Victor Seigelman, correspondent of the French weekly Le Nouvel Observateur, documented how a small group of religious fanatics had gathered in front of Prime Minister Rabin's house on the eve of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and, quote, intoned the mystical Pulsa de Nura, a Kabbalistic curse of death, while the rabbis put a, quote, contract on Rabin's life by invoking the Talmudic concept of Din Rodif on the Jewish, quote, traitor. The authors note that, quote, the manifest destiny of the Jewish people uh, when the kingdom from the Euphrates to the Nile, much longer than they have now, has not been realized, say the zealots. So what is the basis for making peace? Um, and and again, um, Dr. Beirut Goldstein was part of this that, that, that gunned them down. But let me uh, let me skim down here just a few pages, and I'll give you some details about the uh, the Pulse of Denura. It's, it's what you think of with, uh, with magic. Uh, let's see here. This whole thing about the Euphrates to the Nile that that comes up a lot, and I've I've heard that in some like uh, what's his name, uh, Bill Salas. I mean, a couple of interviews with him. You know, yeah, he, he talks about how Israel will eventually stretch from like 
the Euphrates to the Nile. This whole thing comes up again and yeah. again and yeah. again. Now, I know we're not going to talk much about Beirut Goldstein, but it's important to know yeah. how he's revered. Um, there's a Haaretz article quoted here, uh, quoting the Purim revelers. Purim, which is what Netanyahu just said before our Congress was coming up, to point you know, the importance of what they're doing now when they get to take their enemies and hang them from a noose and crucify them. Um, you know, they explain in other sources that Haman is a, a foreshadowing of Christ, where yeah, Jesus Christ, nice. Jesus Christ yeah. was Haman, and uh, they crucified Haman. They crucified Christ. Anyway, they they quoted this guy who shot these women and children that were praying in a mosque. It says it was a pure miracle that holy man did something great. Fifty two Arabs in one stroke. Uh, in another event, uh, the host publicly said that. Goldstein had done a sacred service and appealed to the audience to mourn him. Um, when a Jewish dissenter uh, dissented in the crowd, they physically assaulted him and said, kick the infidel out of the hall. Um, there's another Haaretz study, one of the Jewish uh, uh, newspapers over there, says that Rabbi Dov Lior, head of the Rabbinical Council of Judea and Samaria, uh, was quoted to say that Goldstein was, quote, holier than all the martyrs of the Holocaust. Wow. And and it was because he went in and shoot a, a bunch of women and children in the back, and cited Lior's involvement in other terror attacks and actions that contributed to Rabin's assassination. Yeah. Um, uh, another Jewish uh, Ynet story shows a video of some of the newly settled children in the Arab Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood singing Purim songs. This is in the Arab neighborhoods they're singing uh, to praise the massacre at the Cave of the Patriarchs carried out by Goldstein. With the lyrics they sing, such as, Dr. Goldstein, there is none like you in the world. Dr. Goldstein, we all love you. He aimed at terrorist heads, squeezed the trigger hard, and shot bullets and shot and shot to the Arab neighbors. This is what children learn. And we hear about Palestinian children learning about being suicide bombers and stuff. Yeah, Hamas has their own version of Mickey Mouse. where they. Yeah, well, yeah. the whole... The whole group of people over there. It, it, it's sick what goes yeah. on. So um, It's very much eye for eye, tooth for a tooth. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah, really yeah. what it is, yeah. and it keeps going. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But it's not a one-way thing. Okay, I'm on to a pulse of denura here. Let me describe this. This strange-sided pulse of denura magical ceremony, whose name in Aramaic means lashes of fire. Um, in fact, it's even sort of alluded to in that letter I mentioned to Carrie. Uh, where they mention passages about uh, the fuel of fire, where no man shall spare his brother. Um, it's, it, the, the pulse of Nero is somewhat murky in its origins, with the phrase being cited a few times in the Babylonian Talmud of Judaism and the Zohar of Kabbalah, albeit usually referring to judgment and punishment of angelic beings. Its modern rituals, and modern I mean today when it's done, are said to emanate from the Sefer HaRazim, a Jewish grimoire text of magic, grimoire means summoning demons, uh, from the 3rd century A.D., which, again, predates the Zohar, which prescribes, quote, eating cakes made from blood and flour while calling on angels to do supernatural feats rather than God, including an attack on one's enemy as well as gaining good fortune. Now, I got a copy of this Sefer Havrazim, because I, I had a hard time believing that it says these things in it, but in fact it does. It says the text published from ancient sources uh, that had long been held in uh, um, um, museums, 
but it was actually finally published for the public in 1966, even invokes the Greek god Helios by the Jewish magicians, calling Helios the one who established the heavens, Lord and King, and asking him to be revealed to the sorcerer and to do his bidding while he wears white garments. Hmm. Again, this this same sun worship that was, God said the most wicked thing in Ezekiel chapter 8. Another cited ancient magical document that provides such guidance on curses is called the Harma de Moshi, or the Sword of Moses. This book is anywhere from the 10th century or to one of the 4th century A.D., uh, depending on the manuscripts available, describes prayers, invocations, and ritual procedures that enable the use of the sword, a list of magical names having different magical uses. Amongst the abilities and powers uh, provided to the Jewish magician or sorcerer include instructions to annul spirits and cast out demons and satans, to remove kings, sort of like Rabin, to cause an optical illusion, to stop up a mouth, and to converse with the dead specifically forbidden in the Bible, and to kill the living, and to bring down and raise up and adjure angels to abide by you, and to learn all the secrets of the world, requiring the sorcerer to, quote, write on a silver plate and put in it a root of artesemia, or wormwood. The same stuff that you use to make absinthe. Wow. Um, Now, Israeli sources suggest that this pulsa denura death hex is performed with regularity by various Orthodox Jewish groups in Israel against anyone who might deal charitably in terms of living relationships with local Palestinians or other neighbors. For example, in 2013, the Times of Israel reported that, quote, economics and trade minister Naftali Bennett has received a letter warning him that anonymous antagonist performed a mystical ritual to curse him and his family for policies that infuriate the ultra-Orthodox community. The letter says, quote, this is from his fellow Jew, Jewish leader, you will die. The pulse of Denura has been done to you. From this day, your life is ruined. It is better not to mess with Torah sages. Just one tear of theirs is enough to paralyze you for life. You are one who caused grief to the ultra-Orthodox and rose to prominence, but in the end, you will be like Sharon. Sharon, you know, who was in a uh, in the coma, yeah, a coma yeah. for a long time. The article, whom they also performed a pulse of denaro right before his coma. The article adds that, quote, a group of right-wing extremists performed the ritual against Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin barely a month before he was assassinated, and another group claimed to have done the same six months before Sharon's collapse. Um, In an online version of the article, claims to show a photograph of the Orthodox rabbis actually reciting the pulse of denaro against Rabin, and you can click on it and go to it from, from my book, with with their scroll in hand shortly before his assassination. A video of the curse pronouncement against Sharon also can be seen on YouTube. So if you put in Pulsa Denera curse on Sharon, you'll be able to see it on there. So these things could have real power, because Rabin was assassinated, and Sharon went into a coma, and was in a coma, I think, for like, what, eight years and then he died? Well, you know, the guy who runs the Temple Institute, that evangelical Christian, in fact, one conference I originally saw online recently, local church, these people were fawning over that they met this guy and were taken through and seen the Temple garments. Yeah. He was one of these people running these sorcery curses. 
And he and others have gone on the record and said, we know that this was the cause of the death of these people. You, wow. you don't mess with a Talmud sage. And, and the way I would describe this, Adam, is that, um, as you know, because of all the guests you've had and different stuff, that the overwhelming majority of people talking about magic and all this other supernatural, most of it is charlatanism. Most of it is junk or they want attention or whatever. But there's yeah. a certain core that you can't dismiss. No, and that's I, true. And I would say that there is a certain, and firstly a practicing Christian, that I don't know how you cannot believe in the supernatural. And some, right. It's all predicated on it. But um, if you you start seeing trends... And one of the things I have found is that people, the bad stuff people have with Ouija boards seems to be pretty legit. Not saying every time somebody picked up one, something happens. But there is so much overwhelming evidence that bad stuff happens when people start talking to somebody with a planchette. Uh, another one that seems to be very, very effective. I would reference everybody to our episode 70 for that one. Okay, well, I hope, yeah. I'm, not, I hope I'm not speaking counter to what you all found. I'm just saying. No, not no, not at all. It's actually in conjunction. Yeah. I would also yeah. say that psychomantiums, for some reason, yeah. seem to be. And I say effective, but I say it in a way that's dangerous. You know, it's like an effective form of suicide. You don't want to necessarily recommend it, but a yeah. psychomantium seems like it's a pretty surefire way to contact something on the other side. Mirror, simple mirror gazing. Um, another one is ayahuasca. Now, some people may say it's the mind tricking itself or opening the subconscious. What I don't understand is when a group of people take ayahuasca and all see the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And I have come to the opinion, have, having this last year of having my mind blown from my own study. And again, this is not even the main part of this one volume book, but it's it's almost like a keystone and an arch. It helps explain a lot of things. Is that I have become more convinced that this preserved legacy of Jewish magic is as much the real McCoy, uh, McCoy of any kind of sorcery anywhere. These, well, we got, these guys know the real stuff on how to pull it off. Yeah, I believe that they do, and I believe there is something to it, uh, definitely. Uh, the time we got left, we got about, let's say, about 15, 20 minutes. Uh, I want to talk about Rabbi Kadori. Okay. Uh, and this is something that uh, the guy was like, it was like he died. He was like 106 years old or something. Just something absolutely ridiculous that that he age that he lived to, and but he was also really loved by evangelical Christians. And a lot of that has to do with a book that came out where he supposedly he said that he named the Messiah as being Jesus. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Got everybody all excited. Uh, <laughs> of course, people didn't have a clue anything else about the guy or his background, yeah. but it made a good headline. And yeah. it, it made a good one pager on World Net Daily and uh, promote a book. And, uh, you know, people went from there and then they moved on to other things. Yeah. And that's that's sort of how we do stuff. You know, I speak amongst my own camp. But there's a lot more to me to add to Rabbi Kaduri. But he's not alone. I, I, I would say he is recognized within Israel as the top Kabbalist magician sorcerer. But there's a whole gr- group of people who do it there. Like the ones that I just mentioned, there was a large number doing the Pulse of Denura. The top leaders in religious Zionism, um, at least the more fundamentalist varieties, all seem to have a direct involvement in this activity. It's not a onesie-twosie kind of thing. And uh, 
you know, the, the top groups that lead major whole segments of, of the different parts of Judaism are involved in it from the very, very beginning. So uh, it, it's something we cannot marginalize. And in Israel, they don't marginalize it. Even the people who um, are not Christian, you know, are not believing in God, atheists, they know it dominates their culture. And and to ease into this, let me just mention, because Rabbi Kaduri has been involved with some of the uh, religious parties that uh, play a key role in the government, and, and also they sort of dominate the, the um, settlement community that burns out people and stuff like that. And uh, one of the, the authors, the Israeli uh, uh, experts, uh, Shahak and Mezvinsky, talk about battling prominent rabbi magicians they're not just regulated to the murky past of Talmudic times. Uh, and, and by the way, um, the, the, the Jewish people will say back throughout the history of Judaism, even the times of the Bible, that the high priests were, were performing magic against each other as rivals yeah. to, to, to usurp each other's power. But he mentions that even just in, in uh, the, the, the Shaz party, which is one of the main parties, I don't know if that's pronounced right, but it says that within it, Rabbis Yosef, and and shock attempted to use magic against one another. This was known in the newspaper. This occurred after the struggle between these two leading rabbis became intense. They add that quote the conf- confrontation between the two Haredi movements has been waged in the magical area over the contest of spiritual authority. In keeping with the commonly held magic uh, uh, magical Haredi beliefs, the Shah's leaders' sin of resisting Rabbi Shach's will would be punished by a few curses resulting in either deaths or sicknesses of those leaders or their family members. They cite a 1992 article quoting Professor Gideon Daron, Rabin's major advisor in the 92 elections, who said that Shah's operatives, quote, use magic spells, amulets, and vows that greatly influence their public. Now, this was the main advisor, Rabin. He also adds that, quote, some Israeli Jews admittedly voted for Shah's because of talisman and amulets distributed by Shahs that were supposedly valid only after a correct vote. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so they set a little controller thing in there. If you vote right, yeah. only, suddenly you can suddenly use it as an aphrodisiac or kill somebody. Okay. It, 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 it activates. It activates. You, uh, <laughs> That's right. Okay. They add that Shahs had on his side the great authority and renowned miracle worker, Rabbi Kaduri, who announced that he would shield all Shahs workers by casting Kabbalistic spells. Well, it says, sometimes the spells didn't always work. In the 1999 trial of Jerusalem of the mayor of the Shah, uh, Ma- major Shah's party politician, R.E. Durrell, Durrell was convicted and sentenced for taking bribes. Now, this is the religious leader, okay? Taking bribes in spite of tens of amulets hung on his body and blessed by the most outstanding Kabbalist, who additionally engaged in other magical ceremonies on Durrell's behalf. But they explained that most, quote, uh, most Israel political pundits are agreed that one of the important reasons for Netanyahu's victory in the 1996 election, that's really when he came to the National Front, was the exclusive blessing he received during the campaign from the Kabbalist Rabbi Kaduri and the firm refusals of many Jewish magicians and Kabbalists to bless Perez. Rabbi Kaduri has remained to date a widely reported highly visible Hollywood-type star in the Israeli-Hebrew press. He just since recently died. He was the center of media attention when he descended below the surface of the sea in Elat. Now, Elat is that little corner they have 
by you know like the uh, that peninsula on the inside where they have a port that can go out like you know in the area of the Persian Gulf. Um, it, it says uh, he descended below the surface of the sea in a lot in a device usually used to allow tourists to see underwater sea life, and reportedly instituted spells in order to avert an earthquake that was predicted by scientists. Uh, this was written in the newspapers. He claimed to have diverted the earthquake from Jews to non-Jews. Yeah. So he didn't just get rid of it. He just sent it over to the bad people. Many, <laughs> many Israeli Jews believe this claim because the predicted earthquake was light in a lot, but much more severe in Upper Egypt. Yeah. When the Guardian, the London Guardian... Give it to the Muslim yeah. country. They, they let them have it. Yeah. Why miss an opportunity? The, the, <laughs> the London Guardian, with major newspaper, had obituary for Gary when he died in 06. And it, it's entitled Mercurial Jewish Mystic Who Threw His Weight Behind Right-Wing Israeli Politicians. They note he was born around uh, 1900, died in 2006. It says in May 96, he probably swung the crucial balance of 29,000 voters who ensured that the Likud leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, was elected prime minister. He did so by distributing thousands of magic amulets to his devotees who were then obliged to vote for Netanyahu in the prime minister poll and for the Orthodox Shah party in the simultaneous elections. They cite the common antidote that Netanyahu whispered to Kaduri on camera that the left had forgotten what it means to be Jewish. Hmm. I guess by forgotten to use magic, maybe. Uh, they, no. they note he was born in Iraq, coming to Jerusalem in the early 20th century. They note, this is from the um, London newspaper, that soon thereafter, uh, when he left Iraq to Jerusalem, he taught clients how to predict the future by divining secret texts hidden in the Psalms or how to summon angels to help overcome personal problems. They note that in, in 1991, he sought out the name of Saddam Hussein's mother so that he could send efficacious pulsa de nura against this enemy of the Jews. Kaduri was also implicated in the death curse on Yitzhak Rabin, which was eerily announced just a month before his assassination, November 95. He did not like Madonna and other celebrities studying Kabbalah and was known to say, it is forbidden to teach Kabbalah to a non-Jew. Uh, they conclude by estimating that 200,000 people came to his funeral. That's a lot of people. Wow. The Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Post added further details in their obituary of him. Uh, in the Jerusalem Post, it says that the rise of Kabbalistic study mysticism in the public, which uh, w was part of him, which he represented as a senior expert, they conclude by saying, Rabbi Mordecai Sharabi, one of the greatest Jewish mystics of the previous generation, purportedly said that Kaduri was the only person capable of writing amulets that have the power to bring success, heal, improve fertility, or change reality for the better in some way. In Kabbalistic thought, it is believed that amulets tap the power of demons and spirits and use them to perform miracles. <coughs> now remember, this is Jerusalem Post, okay? In order to harness these supernatural powers, it is normally necessary to force these demons or spirits to take an oath. This is considered incredibly dangerous since the demons and spirits, once released from the oath, seek retribution. Asked once if he forces an oath on demons that he writes as amulets, Kaderi replied, quote, God forbid. It is forbidden to force them to take an oath. I only ask them nicely. If, <laughs> if they want to listen to me, they listen. Most of the time they respect me because I'm so old. Hey, Astaroth, do you think you could uh, help me out here? Maybe you know, do me a favor? 
And it sounds like Bible-believing Christians should really ally themselves closely with these people. This must be God's will. Yeah. Well, what was it that he said about 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 Jesus? Is there any was there any is there any validity to well, that? Let me let me share that with you. Okay. Kadiri was still making news long after he'd passed from this earth. The Israeli magazine Israel Today reported, amongst other news outlets in 2007, that, quote, a few months before he died, one of the nation's most prominent rabbis, Yitzhak Kaduri, supposedly wrote the name of the Messiah on a small note, which he requested would remain sealed until now. When the note was unsealed, it revealed what many have known for centuries. Yahoshua, or Yeshua Jesus, is the Messiah based on an acrostic of the words and a phrase reportedly written by Kaduri. Uh, he will lift the people and prove that his word and law are valid. They noted that Kaduri's website, Kaduri.net, authenticated it. Members of Kaduri's yeshiva were not sure how to interpret it. Jewish internet commentators asked, so this means Rabbi Kaduri was a Christian? And his other followers said the note was authentic, but stated, we have no idea how Rabbi got to this name of the Messiah. His son called the assertion blasphemy, and he uh, pointed to him, Jesus, but said that, quote, my father has met the Messiah in a vision and told us he would come soon. They add that Kadiri once said when he comes, the Messiah will rescue Jerusalem from foreign religions. But his son felt like it was probably fake because there were plus signs and crosses on it, and they know that they're forbidden to write any kind of plus signs. And in hmm. fact, if you go in Israel today... Through large part of Israel teaching for kids, elementary school and elsewhere, they do not yeah. use a plus sign in their math textbooks. You don't see plus signs on a lot of billboards when for ads for selling stuff. Because it looks too much like a cross. Because that's how much they hate Jesus. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you won't even see that in in the Taliban. I mean, that, that this is the ultimate uh, hatred of Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, the Baptist pastor Carl Gallup's wrote the rabbi who found Messiah, the story of Yitzhak Kaduri and his prophecies. Um, so I conclude by saying uh, this influential Christian Zionist institution sees no problems promoting the visions of a well-known Jewish sorcerer. This is World Net Daily published it. They see no problem yeah. in promoting the visions of a well-known Jewish sorcerer who permits, who admits to communicating with demons and performing forbidden sorcery with no testimony of his submission to Jesus of Nazareth still being awestruck by the mystique and, quote, deep wisdom of the rabbinic leadership that exhibits degeneration into blasphemous acts, rather than serving as, quote, a voice of God's revelation and witness to the worldwide Jewish community that is estranged from God and in spiritual darkness. I'm, I'm sure that, uh, much like heaven is for real, it probably made, you know, people feel good and warm inside for, like, 20 minutes. Uh-huh. Well, you know, what's, you know what's funny about this? I, I continue. There's an organization called Memory, M-E-M-R-I, that's yeah. one of the two main groups that translate documents from the Arab world, in, from Arabic, about, like, the Muslim community that are always in real inflammatory and come back to America. And it turns out both groups that do this for the media, I have discovered all run by former uh, Shin Bet or Israeli intelligence operatives. Hmm. And I'm shocked that they're actually uh, anti-Muslim in their in their writing or anti-Arab, but um, <laughs> but they reported um, 
that's kind of like the Scientologist owning like the cult, um, yeah, like the, the the center to get get unbrainwashed from cults. You know. <laughs> well, this was circulated in the Christian media, okay, and the uh, yeah. that that their report that memory sent out says. They shockingly reported Iranian officials says the Jews used sorcery against Iran in April 2013. And they shockingly see that the Iranians would be so uh, slanderous as to say in their anti-Semitism documentation project that, quote, an Iranian regime official and a website close to the regime recently accused Jews of engaging in sorcery and employing it against Iran and claiming that, quote, the Jews are the most powerful sorcerers in the world today. This is what Iran uh, said. They noted an Iranian website posted an article about the status of sorcery, numerology, and Jewish mysticism. According to the article, Jewish cherish the knowledge of sorcery, pass it down from generation to generation, and believe it can be used to control mankind, nature, and even God's decisions. The Iranian article added that, quote, the Jews have always tended to resort to divination, a practice that has its roots in astronomy, astrology, and sorcery, which they picked up when they consorted with various peoples in the course of history. They cherished this knowledge like a treasure generation after generation. They add, this is the Iranians adding, that the Jews create an ideological climate in which the appreciation of sorcery and the yearning for it increase. The Jewish people think that ruling over man, nature, and divine traditions can be achieved only by means of sorcery. They believe that it's possible to conquer nature and the world, even to control God's decisions by using sorcery methods. Sorcery is known to be a practice of which the divine books, i.e. the Old Testament, New Testament, Quran, and monotheistic religions disapprove. But Jewish mysticism regards it as a legitimate means to uncover the secrets of the holy book. Now, of course, when the Iranians said such a thing, the Christian Zionists came forward against them, and an article in World Net Daily uh, by Bob Unra, citing this, says that uh, uh, that this basically was a blood libel against the Jews. And uh, they quote a former terrorist turned Christian, Walid Shabbat, uh, oh, that, um, you know, quoting how terrible this reference was in saying that they said this. But I have to admit, through my studies of all Jewish, uh, respected Jewish sources, they said the identical thing that the Iranians said in this passage. Yeah, yeah. So who who who's the real ignorant one? Who who's the dope, the dupe, in this whole process itself? Well, Doctor Future, we are just about out of time, and you know we didn't even really get to even to cover like the Dybbuk and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's like the so, film there's, that you and I watched, there, and, and I want to just reassure the people that I'm not on some kind of quest to go string up Jews. I. Right, I am a, right. an agent of reconciliation and love. I want the very best for every single Jew. I want them to be fully connected to God and their fellow man uh, and, and to be brethren with me. And I, I have their best interest in mind, too. But since we're dealing with stuff, just like with the Netanyahu speech that was just given and other things, yeah. we're getting prodded and provoked by the aggressive people in our camps to lead to what basically could be World War Three and to start shedding blood, and to let the most extremists in our groups break our own fundamental beliefs that Jesus Christ gave us because of our bloodlust in, in the name of God, that we better be careful and really start learning who are the people we're cavorting, cavorting with and hanging out with. 
And, oh, I absolutely agree. And I'm sure I'm going to, you know, from the people who listen to this, I may get attacked a lot too. But I want to tell your listeners too, the large part of them probably don't get into the, the church thing or the, the organized religion thing or whatever. And I have sympathy for how you feel. I Even though I do, I'm involved in a local church and I, I try to help people. I try to help people that have problems and the vulnerable and the weak and the sick. And I want to be there for them. But I will tell you, none of this stuff, this crap, has anything to do with Jesus, the stuff he talked about, what his apostles talked about. They reject all this stuff and all this violent stuff and attacking and everything else. And yep. I will not apologize for standing with the humble words of love of Jesus and stand against all this other stuff. I don't care if a Christian leader says it or a Muslim or a Jew or whoever. If these people want to use evil forces to gain power over an enemy, count me out. And I don't care if it's a Christian person doing it. And I tell you, Christians take this stuff, they take all these sacred names of God, and they think it's something holy to use. When when I believe it has its roots right in this whole Jewish sorcery tradition, when there's only one name all of us need to get all we need, and that is Daddy. Jesus yeah. said, you call God Daddy. You call him Abba, and, and you have a ticket to his lap. You don't need to learn any of this mystical tradition or hocus-pocus or things like that. All that stuff, selfish stuff, where you just want to hurt and get advantage of other people, all those people are going to be destroyed that get involved in that. If, if you just want to live at peace, raise your kids, help your neighbor, then you've got ample opportunity, and Daddy will help you with everything you need. And that's the only name that I need or anybody else needs if they want to unite with the divine or the supernatural. Yeah, I'm full agreement there, Dr. Future. Uh, just real quick, uh, what are you working on now? Uh, what is the, is there any ETA as far as like the, the book series coming yeah. out? Yeah. Well, uh, I guess people will think I kicked the Jews in 2014. Uh, it's dirty laundry for everybody, so I'm <laughs> kicking the Christians in 2015. I hope they feel better about it. There we go. We, Christians got <laughs> Christians got tons of dirty laundry, and you know it's like what? It's it's their turn now. Yeah, and, and I know Doctor Future does too. But the fact is, when we're honest with each other and we lay this stuff out, it is a humbling experience. It, it we find out we don't own a corner on righteousness, and that um, you know other people are struggling just like we are, and so we got all put our cards on the table, our shortcomings, stuff like that. So hopefully we can knock it off and live peacefully with each other. And so I'm currently working on that one. Um, and I'm showing a lot of how Christians uh, departed from the simple teaching of Christ and the apostles about loving others and reconciling them. And uh, I've got some documents still yet to go through where the CIA started unveiling some evangelical leaders who were allied with the CIA. And uh, some of them were big names. And um, some of the really just bad stuff that went on. The bigger reach you have, the more mischief you can do. And so that's going on. Uh, you know, my my problem is I have these radio shows with people I really like. When they call up, I have to stop and do their radio show. Or <laughs> stream of email. Well, okay. A lot, lot of people that email me and, you know, when they're calling me a jerk or whatever, I try to respond. <laughs> so I get a lot of that. And so I have a lot, a lot of distractions. And all you guys who are, who are fans of Pyro, uh, who was one of the hosts of Future Quake, uh, he blew out his knee. So I've been, been nurse Dr. Future for him. So just a lot of stuff going on. But I hope to get this current volume drafted. Uh, Pyro but, is Dr. Future's dog. Yeah, well, 
<laughs> I guess you could call it that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, hopefully before the end of the year is up, I'm going to get this volume done. I have one more to draft, which is all the dirty laundry of the more recent era of the war on terror and the whole anti-Sharia crown. And it just keeps amping up the scandalous nature. Um, in fact, I think National Enquirer would be uh, uh, too, too shameful to even publish some of the stuff that I'm going to be throwing out there. <laughs> you know, even they'd be too. And um, everything needs to get the light of day and get aired out. And uh, so it's hopefully worth the wait. I'm hoping by sometime next year to knock that out. Uh, I got stacks to the ceiling of books to go through. So, And even that's not enough. So all this is going to do is hopefully stimulate people's minds enough, maybe, where they'll start looking at stuff themselves. Th- this magic stuff that, that I have in here, um, it was enough to blow my mind, and I, I got the gist of what was going on, but there's much more to be mined there, and I encourage everybody to do it. And when they have the book, when it's released, hopefully they can start using those references and take it from there, and you'll be surprised. And we need to hold people to account. We need to take this stuff and put it in front of people's noses and, and demand answers. And so um, that's what I'm hoping. So I, I'm hoping maybe the next year to get the last one done, I will have a total of seven books, all large books, and uh, get them cleaned up, uh, dressed up, and start probably releasing them about two-month intervals. Uh, cool. If I can Absolutely. focus, and if that's okay when the time comes, we'll take as much time as you want. We might yep. even take a chapter show. Who knows? Yeah, well, <laughs> if, you, if you want to, we'll march. Have you found that the current one you're reading has it kept your attention? Yes, it does. Okay, I hope the average reader is be true too. It's all well, done. That, it's not doing it for money because it just honks people off. But right. I'm doing it to try to provide a service to fellow people of goodwill, even whether you're you know a God believer or not. But if you're a person of goodwill um, that wants people to get along, you're my friend, and uh, I want you to work with me, and we'll work together. <laughs> Well, thank you, Dr. Future, and thank you for coming on. And uh, stay on the line for us. Uh, We're just going to close out this segment, and we'll be back for like a very brief intro because this has been a marathon interview on Conspiranormal. All right, uh, we're back on Conspiranormal. Um, Really great and long interview with Dr. Future. Once again, Um, I learned a lot. (laughs) Yeah, a ton of information in that. And there's really so much more that we really could have really could have talked about that we just didn't like i kind of mentioned like the whole dybbuk thing uh that's an interesting realm of jewish magic and kabbalah um so yeah really won't stress out stress too much the point on it to too much getting kind of tired here it's almost like nine thirty for us and uh no luke really interesting topic <laughs> and absolutely no luke <laughs> But it is what it is. We we were saying that like uh, we'll have like a topic where the Luke is completely not interested. And he'll be here, and then like the the one is like I was like he would be so interested in this, like dealing with the occult or something like that. And he would be so interested, like the Tracy Twyman show. That was when he would have been really interested in, and like dismisses it. <laughs> All because he forgot to set his clocks. Yeah, yeah. Everybody should have set. Everybody should have set their clocks forward, man. You know. Um. Well, anyway, Rob, I, do you have any uh, insight, anything that you, to this tonight? Yeah, I wanted to to kind of touch in on how, um, like I was saying, how they, it it tied in a lot to to what Craig Ciccone was saying when he was on yeah. a few weeks ago. Um, 
not so much about the 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 mysticism stuff we talked on just more about the extremists and various uh religious groups and sects and how they're the ones that always come to light and they're the ones that we hear about and you know they become the faces and the poster children of of these whole cultures which isn't really fair to the cultures themselves yeah and that was what i found most interesting about tonight was the the discussions about the um uh the way a lot of those different religions in the middle east kind of view each other and interact and Mm -hmm. and get along the monotheist religions the the monotheist religions and uh the you know christianity and islam and uh judaism they all have the same kind of the the all same kind of like fundamentalists And, and there's also you know there's there's other religions that have fundamentalists like the fundamentalist hindus and all that right but uh yeah things seem to kind of match together a lot uh just real quick we're gonna get out of here um but next week in a couple weeks i have uh peter goodgame coming on and we're gonna talk about um muslim terrorism and kind of how he feels that there is a uh people behind the stage that have duped and used muslim terrorism to their own ends and then about a week or so after that, we're going to have Eric Altman come on and we're going to talk about Bigfoot. So that'll be an equally interesting topic, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll have my friend Sean, who's come on and sat in on the show. He really wants to, He's really been pressing me to get somebody on to talk about Bigfoot. And uh, I'm like, okay, man, I'll get you somebody on. <laughs> and I uh, heard Eric on another uh, podcast and uh, thought it was really interesting. But... Uh, Thank you guys for joining us, and uh, we're going to go ahead and call it a night. But thank you for listening to Normal. No witty Luke thing here. <laughs>
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.